Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Today we are back with Susan Wardle, a professor from the University of Otago in the Department of Anthropology. We'll be having a special holiday episode where we will be talking about the holidays, rituals, celebrations, among other things. We'll also be talking about Susan's recent work, so stay around and listen. Hi there Susan, welcome to The Human Show. Again. Hi, nice to see you. Yeah, it's great to have you back on here again. I mean, we enjoyed talking to you so much last time. As did I. So um, today's going to be a little different. We're going to be talking about the holidays, traditions, um, rituals. And you, with your work in Otago University and your recent work on religion, know a bit about that, don't you? Yeah, quite a few of the different areas that I work in come back to the topic of ritual, and it is seen as one of those core anthropological things, so I suppose it's not too surprising that whatever way I look, it seems to pop up again. So how would you define a ritual? Well, of course, there's a lot of definitions floating around out there, but just to boil it down to something memorable and catchy for my students, I like to refer to ritual as a bearer and sharer of meaning. So uh, it can be such a, a variety of different things. And what distinguishes ritual from symbolism is that embodied aspect, but it still comes back to that same core um, definition of, of symbolism as well, and that it bears some meaning beyond the literal or practical um, value of the of the action that it bears that meaning and that it shares it communicates it to others Um, the other side is that I like to emphasize that ritual doesn't just mean something but it actually does something it has that performative quality of being able to transform something in the social world so those are usually what I come back to to define ritual and how have you seen um, rituals expressed in say celebrations or certain traditions? Well, that's a good question because I think the first answer is usually um, the most obvious one and yet the most interesting answer is when we start to open it out. So when we first think of ritual, we think of something that uh, occurs in a kind of highly formalized ritual space um, and it's talked about as the sacred space time where it's really clear to see when the ritual starts and ends and that it has this um, set prescribed quality to it. So um, in that sense we can see um, ritual very obviously in a lot of um, religious ceremonies and traditions and around big special occasions Um, and certainly in the holiday season and at Christmas times of year um, we have a lot of rituals that have um, that had quite a long history often embedded in Christian practices Um, yet I personally am really interested in the work of um, people like Catherine Bell who bring out this idea of ritualization and who've challenged our discipline and other disciplines to think about ritual um, as practice. So something that people do, a way of doing things rather than just a set number of activities. So if you actually start to open it up like that, you start to see ritual um, everywhere, you know, even even more 
Um, diversely present in the way people do things, perhaps quite everyday things, and perhaps things nothing to do with special occasions even, or um, religion, but it's a way of doing things that invest them invest them in me with meaning and it might still have a patterned quality it might still have this wider shared social meaning but it isn't necessarily the obvious uh, flamboyant examples of ritual wow that's a really in-depth great answer (laughs) how have you seen rituals and celebrations change in different places that you've been to because you've been to a lot of different places you've studied in New Zealand and Uganda and I bet a few other places as well being an anthropologist Yes, and um, again, ritual is one of those things that can be one of the more noticeable things, especially those sacred and religious rituals um, that is noticeable when you go somewhere else and um, they are undertaking actions that seem to be a meaning and that you might um, be outside of initially. Um, Uganda is an interesting example since you asked me about my work there because I was working with uh, evangelical Christian groups and that was my um, focus for my study. And uh, evangelicalism and Pentecostalism is often defined as kind of having this anti-ritual going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, within emically within those groups, they often don't like to talk about um, ritual or to be associated with ritual as a kind of way of differentiating from earlier Protestant traditions and Catholic traditions. Um, and there's this kind of rhetoric that circulates about empty ritual, empty ritual, which as an anthropologist, I think is interesting because by definition, Ritual is the opposite of empty. Again, it's laden with meaning. But um, anyway, within these groups, they have um, their own ritual practices, absolutely laden with rituals, but around this kind of value of the charismatic, the spontaneous, the fluid. So it's a different way of seeing ritual and thinking about ritual that, again, wasn't immediately apparent to me as ritual. And yet I think it's an important, important thought tool we can apply to to, uh, to looking at such groups. So in different areas, everyone has their own way of conceptualizing and expressing themes like rituals and traditions and that that are different from how we do here. Yeah, I think that's nicely put. And even if we went back to New Zealand as an example, um, we still have ritual, rituals everywhere. And yet I think the way we do ritual, even around things like Christmas, takes on some of the kind of broader cultural values of of Kiwi culture as well. Um, Perhaps a more of a kind of relaxed, laid back nature so that even our, um, our rituals and our Christmas rituals, they're still patterned activities that can carry meanings and communicate those socially, but they might um, not take on as as formal a kind of quality as some places. The Kiwi Christmas is a pretty interesting phenomenon in lots of ways. <laughs> it is, isn't it? I was reading in an article recently, um, I think it was um, one of Daniel Miller's, and he was talking about the local and the global of um, celebrations like Christmas. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how even with globalized ones that every culture and place emphasize the local part of it, the traditions to make it their own yes. and it's their way of doing Christmas. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. And I think a lot of that comes down to the way that um, 
these things are they're built to be a sensuous experience they're built to be something I mean ritual is embodied isn't it it's something that's supposed to be experienced felt participated in with the body and in that sense um, I guess when we're looking at global and when we're looking at local um, there's there's almost no such thing as global ritual in that way it always has to be it might circulate the different symbols and the different practices might circulate through global systems, but as it's actually lived, as it's actually experienced, as it's actually practiced, it becomes re-localized in each and every instance that it's enacted and experienced, you know, um, by the individuals and by the groups it's enacted and experienced within. So um, this idea about global, maybe if I was to be contentious, I would say there's no such thing as global ritual. And the other word that becomes useful in that discussion is glocalization with yeah. the C um, rather than trying to see things as um, global, seeing them circulating globally that but then being relocalized or glocalized. <laughs> well, I suppose you'd know quite a bit about that with your work back in Uganda since you did, um, you studied Christian care ethics, didn't you? I did, yes. Yeah, and uh, it's one of those interesting things to study um, what's generally prescribed as a global religion and realise um, how how diversely, of course, it articulates in different local life worlds. So, you know, the way that Christian rituals and other aspects of Christian life were practised and understood were, of course, very specific to Ugandan life worlds. Talking about religion, what is your view with certain traditions and religion? Say popular ones like, you know, we've been talking about Christmas, so we'll just stick it to that with Christianity or any other religion. I think it's such an interesting time of year to look at the role of religion in um, in broader society, um, in broader secular society. And I will speak specifically about New Zealand in that case, since that's what I'm familiar with, um, because there's such a, um, in some ways, contentious um, relationship now between um, a society that's formally established itself as secular and um, the particular cohorts of the population that identify as religious, but then also um, the wider population as it engages with traditions that have that religious meaning but are adapted and um, adapted outside of that. So when I think about secularism, I think about that tension between freedom from and freedom to religion um, and how tricky that actually is in practice. But then I feel like there's a big shift that occurs when we enter um, into the holiday season as to how much religion is allowed in that public sphere. So if secularism normally kind of um, puts a pretty clear line around it and says religion is allowed here in this private sphere, I feel like that boundary dissolves or softens or weakens as we get into the holiday season and um, more and more of religion is allowed to kind of um, leak out into the public sphere, which is an interesting experience. And I'm sure there's room to do interesting ethnographic work there as to what that feels like, what that experience is like for people who um, don't share in a Christian faith. And then also for what it's like for people who do and who suddenly um, 
suddenly have their um, their worldview more public and more present. And there was some interesting work, some lovely work done by um, Matthew and Galka, uh, who looked at this in uh, in England. He looked at um, particular Christian groups there. Um, and the work's called Angels in Swindon. Swindon's the name of the place he, he looked at this in. It was from 2012. He looks at this idea of ambient faith and the, that sensuous quality that I was mentioning before of engagement with um, with religious symbols and experiences in this particular Christian group that was trying to work out basically how to um, bring faith, bring um, the typically privatised now Christian faith into the more public setting in ways that were accessible and acceptable and interesting little things they decided to do like focus on angels as a um, as a symbol which they felt was more more accessible to the wider public was not too confronting or affronting yeah. um, to people who didn't share the base belief system so I think that that um, bridging symbols I might call them like that are what appear more prominently now in the local version of Christian uh, of Christmas that we see in New Zealand which tap into religious sort of feelings and symbols without being too specific being accessible um just for our listeners could you go a bit more into what secularism is Yes, sure. So, I mean, one useful thing is to differentiate between secularism and secularization for a start. So, I mean, secularization is one of those isations that re- refers to a broader historical trend. Um, even that's a bit contentious because it's, it's sort of intended to be um, descriptive as to a shift that's occurred throughout European history, and very specifically European, I think it's important to note that, um, that has led to um, the role of religion moving from um, and being part of embedded in public life and public institutions to um, being separated from that and um, privatised. So it's not, as some people think, necessarily to do with a reduction in the importance of religion for individuals' lives or even a, a reduction in the numbers of people who consider themselves religious but it's just a shift in the place of religion and society so that's secularization secularism however is a particular ideological stance um, that um, sees the ideal um, it has this moral quality of seeing the best or ideal um, set up for society being one that keeps religion in a separate sphere to things like politics and education and medicine and other aspects of public life and I mean the um, the really seminal work of Talal Assad on this bringing in a post-structuralist perspective has highlighted that ideological quality that um, that position in itself is not kind of like a black slate. <laughs> it's it's an ideological position in itself. So the debate with that one is whether secularism has um, come in as kind of an inevitable result of modernity, kind of this neutral result, or whether it's come in as a kind of deliberate project tied in with liberal secularism and liberal um, democracy, which is Talal Assad's position. Yeah, I mean, the best example I always think of when I think of that is um, the separation of religion from um, the public schooling. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right that that's one of the places in New Zealand that we see that um, that difficulty and freedom from and freedom to religion um, as it emerges when you try and put secularism in place. We see that popping up in in the media as a kind of site of friction and recently also in New Zealand in the debates about parliamentary prayer. And um, when I speak with my students about this, we look at France as another interesting alternative example about how this can play out differently. And the very compelling image um, that came out uh, a few years ago, I think it was 2015, um, of the Muslim woman sitting on the beach in France with the police officers standing around her and asking her to remove her burkini. And um, I think that that struck uh, very deeply with me, and it's one that I return to to think about, again, the way that secularism is never clean cut when we, when we try and implement it in the world. You need a lot of kindness and grace to kind of oil the mechanisms um, in applying that kind of uh, that kind of ideology. Oh, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. It is sometimes upsetting. I mean, I remember back in New Zealand school, there was an argument about whether people were allowed to wear the cross as mm-hmm. a piece of jewellery in school. Yes, and that was um, what happened in France was the decision to ban religious symbols from from schools, which it opens up a host of interesting questions like what is a religious symbol, what counts as a religious symbol, um, and in an era of reasonably privatised religion, um, it gets very slippery as to what what is religion and this whole category um, which is increasingly common of people identifying as spiritual but not religious means that all sorts of different symbols could bear that kind of deep deep meaning we associate with a religious symbol even though they're not necessarily tied to a particular institutionalised religion so it becomes a very slippery territory to define what is religion but I think it also benefits us to um, break open that category a little bit because in liberal secularism religion can be a stigmatized um, category it can be a category in which we apply a lot of a lot of othering to Mm. Um, and that's one thing that Talal Assad does talk about is that um, the limits of tolerance in liberal secularism is often when it gets to religious fundamentalism that um, it tolerates up until the point where it meets a group that themselves don't want to adopt the tenets of liberal secularism and then that group becomes othered and um, there's a few anthropologists um, uh, Harding and Howell picking up her earlier work, Susan Harding's earlier work about um, Christians as the repugnant cultural other and um, I mean it's a lovely memorable phrase isn't it, the repugnant cultural yeah. other but uh, acknowledging that um, religious people and religious groups can sometimes be stigmatised is a good impetus for thinking then about what is religion and broadening the definition to recognise that almost anyone in almost any group in society holds many of the same characteristics as religious groups do in terms of having having values, having a worldview, having an ethos, having symbols that are important to them and traditions and rituals which they use to construct their world and all of those things we think of as components of religion specifically are actually components of human life and human meaning making and are present everywhere. So when I, when I think about this, I hope that it um, helps people to um, other religious people less 
It's a very complicated thing, isn't it? Especially within anthropology. You yourself are a religious, right? Yes, yeah. I um, I'm a Christian, so um, when I've approached this work, I've had to do a lot of deep reflexive thinking about um, how one practices a secular anthropology um, and study, you know, insider anthropology, studying people that I was at least a partial insider to. So in Uganda, for example, um, I was certainly not a cultural insider. Um, I was set apart very much um, in terms of my, um, yeah, my my cultural upbringing and um, my skin colour and um, lots of other features like that. And yet, I was a partial insider in that I shared a Christian faith with the people that I was working with. Um, and that, I guess, is what led me going to going to go back to the work of. Um, people like um, Howell writing about this idea of the repugnant cultural other and then standpoint theory, which is a useful way <clears throat> to consider um, how every, breaking that myth of objectivity a little bit and um, considering how everyone comes to knowledge making and anthropology from a particular standpoint. Everyone comes with a particular um a particular positionality. Everyone is a position subject. Um, so the fact that I come as a posi- position subject and my position is um, one of one of religious commitment myself um, doesn't necessarily. I hope. <laughs> I hope, and I argue in my work doesn't. Um, dismiss the knowledge that I produce it just means that I have to be very reflexively aware of how that shapes um, shapes the work I do just like everyone does everyone coming as a position subject from within that or outside of that and the value of different positionalities like feminism as a parallel that Howell makes um, is that that standpoint gives you gives you a base for knowledge and a particular angle and a particular direction and having that um, doesn't you know, doesn't disqualify the knowledge it just positions it no no I, I totally agree with you well in the education system I don't know why but it does seem to have the secular view so sometimes people are a bit more judgmental of some views whereas the point is is that everyone like you said does have their own bias does have their own background and that's going to affect how we all think about things and deal with situations so yeah you're certainly right that that's part of um the the academy as it is at the moment is that it's um it's heavily vested to its um secular ideologies and I guess that's why I like coming back to Talal Assad's work and um and absolutely accepting that as a you know as a productive and valuable way to run our um run academia at the moment but that that itself is an ideological stance and it um it shouldn't be used to dismiss other ways of approaching approaching knowledge but it certainly does make me um yeah it gives me some useful insights into both the anthropological way of thinking about religion and um, a more a more insider perspective and certainly when it comes to Christianity it's such a strangely positioned um, positionality now and that it's a huge amount of historical privilege in Christianity being associated with um, you know dominant western formations of power Um, and yet as it's moving at the moment there are ways that it is socially stigmatized to be a religious person in general 
secular society and certainly um, and perhaps even more so um, in academia. So can sort of get the sense of threat that um, that some people feel around changing religious institutions. And I guess I was very aware of that with the debates around the removal of parliamentary prayer, um, that Christianity has a long, for a long time been able to be associated with political mechanisms that oppose itself upon other groups and other people's in really, you know, horrible and dangerous ways when we think of um colonialism I mean just to you know open up a giant can of worms there Um, so the acknowledgement of Christianity's role in those systems of powers I don't think is necessarily one that a lot of people are willing or comfortable to admit Um, a lot of Christian people I mean that's really difficult to uh, acknowledge your own privilege and power historically um, especially when it seems to butt up against the the right now experience of having some of that privilege, such as having a Christian prayer in Parliament, having some of that privilege taken away or changed, it feels like um, being being stigmatised or being targeted when, in fact, it's it has to be viewed in that wider context of you know, histories of power. I never thought about it that way. So it's really interesting to hear you say that, that some people feel like they're targeted by such acts. But I can totally understand it now that you've explained it. I mean, yeah, it's so interesting, actually, especially in New Zealand society. We're changing so much, aren't we? Especially in terms of um, religion and secularization. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so what do you feel like in terms of traditions I mean like holidays the secularization of like these once religious holidays like how do you think that um, people from a more religious point of view view this I guess I would say well I think in general in my experiences in New Zealand it's not too contentious because that that secularization has been in process for a long time in um, many Western nations, and I think um, contemporary religious people buy into that as much as anyone in a sense now, and that the place of religion is within the private sphere. I think most um, most people are comfortable practicing, I shouldn't probably say most people because that is a big generalization, <laughs> but many people are comfortable practicing um, their faith as part of their own private sphere and their family life and within their religious communities and aren't too bothered as to whether that's taken up by um, or given an enormous amount of space in the public sphere. Um, there are there are certain people that feel differently. I think the difficulty more becomes um, applying it to different groups who do feel differently, whose core identity is around um, the use of religion in the public sphere Um, and while it's a nice and neat idea for secularism to be able to say religion is only a private phenomenon for people whose religion isn't (laughs) um, that that core identity um, that core nature of of their practice can't be changed by someone else simply saying that it's different Um, but within I mean within New Zealand we have we have a lovely amount of diversity and we have plenty of um, struggles in terms of cultural politics and identities um, that probably aren't occurring very vocally in the public sphere just yeah. because of 
national characteristics aren't to be necessarily very adversarial about these things, but I think it probably does emerge just in little moments of tension about um, I, just little things, even within families and even within different communities about, um, you know, how the name of God is used or who says a prayer at what point or uh, even the old fact about Christmas with a CH versus Xmas with an X. There's these tiny little moments that, you know, as anthropologists we're trained to observe these little moments of tension and friction and meaning through which people negotiate these changes. And I think it is more these little moments that are telling rather than big giant debates in the streets that we see at times like um, times like this where we are at in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so another question I wanted to ask you was about, so you've done some work on the media in New Zealand and other places before, so I was wondering, like, have you got any opinions on how the media represents the holidays around this time of year in New Zealand and perhaps other places you've been to? Well, one thing I find interesting about representations of Christmas, again, from a New Zealand standpoint, is that disarticulation between um, many of the key symbols of Christmas that come from, um, come from uh, Europe. So things like winter, for example, and then the immense work that seems to be occurring in New Zealand media to articulate a Kiwi version of Christmas to somehow, um, you know, capture some shared resonance. Because part of the, um, the joy of the celebration is this feeling of everyone participating in this, this holiday season, that everyone's sharing, everyone's feeling. It's the cultivation of collective feeling, which is powerful in Christmas. Christmas, and yet the feeling's a little bit different um, to have everyone everyone warmly gathered with their family around the fireside to drink hot cocoa, you know, has this lovely symbolic resonance um, in theory, and we're exposed to all of that through lots of Christmas movies and things like that, and yet we don't share in it. In New Zealand, we can't do that, because if you put on the fire and made the hot cocoa on Christmas here, you'd be sweating and uncomfortable. So on the other hand, there's this work tied in with nature building to um, to build a symbolic language around what Christmas is like here. What is it that makes those warm, fuzzy, shared collective feelings and families and communities throughout the country for us in New Zealand that hopefully gives us some connection back to um, other, other places and countries as well but that's also unique and I loved seeing the Prime Minister's Christmas cards come out, I think it was last week uh, she ran a competition for school children to send the designs for her official Christmas cards and yeah. then she made a little video of some of the uh, some of the winners she didn't like to call them winners but um, some of the ones she'd selected and she selected a variety and most of the ones selected had this kind of unique Kiwi feeling to them we had the beehive with a Christmas tree hanging off the top and we had you know key, uh, I think there was a sleigh pulled by New Zealand native birds and things like that and, and things that evoke uh, a belonging uh, specific to New Zealand that are part of this nation building process but still draw on um, symbols from a European Christmas as well and things like Christmas trees so uh, it's tied in with a broader political project but um, the evocation of feeling around the holidays I'm very interested in emotion and affect so I find that quite intriguing 
Yeah, I mean, I guess emotions do play a big part, especially this time of year. I mean, I guess at this time of year, people find themselves like talking to family more or put under a lot of pressure or it's just a lot would be going on in terms of emotion and stress and how we deal with things at this time of year. So what are your thoughts on that since you've um, you've done some lectures on emotions and well-being in that as well, haven't you? Yeah, emotions one of my kind of main interest areas. So I guess when I think about and um, look at ritual, that is one aspect of ritual that I noticed and that has been studied fairly extensively is the ability of ritual to generate um, to generate emotions or to not always to generate, sometimes to mediate them to um, sometimes especially in more formal ritual to create this kind of sacred safe bounded space in which certain emotions can occur, both positive and negative. And then that collective nature of um, collective rituals generating collective emotions which from a more functionalist point of view have quite a powerful and important social role of binding people together you know shared experiences and shared emotions Mm -hmm. Uh, but as you say they're very how it actually plays out the very real experiences of of Christmas rituals and traditions can be full of tension um, full of stress and anxiety there's a lot of pressure placed on those traditions as points where um, key cultural values um, are elaborated and uh, things like family, the notion of family, um, are attached to these. And yet, of course, as we know, family is complicated and diverse and tricky and a lot of people experience perhaps a mismatch between um, traditional images of something like family and how it should be and the emotions that they think they should be feeling in that. And there's a dissonance between that and the actual experience of, um, of going back to you know, networks of kinship and belonging that are complex and imperfect and partial and it becomes a time when that dissonance itself is painful. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of, like, obligations you could say around this time of year too, to, like, the family and to these traditions and cultures that we uphold. Mm, there is a lot of... Um, a lot of scholarship on the gift would be relevant to think about, of course, around Christmas and the central rituals around gift giving. And just as you say, it's as much about obligation um, as it is um, receiving. And this idea of the free, warm, fuzzy gift um, is not is not what we start to see when we look at it anthropologically as a gift that you know ties and binds and asks something, creates. Um, bonds that aren't just um, bonds of love, affective bonds, but are bonds of uh, obligation. And certainly the way that people invest in Christmas, um, not just gift giving, but more broadly, um, invest in these broader social bonds, but isn't always supported and isn't always um, isn't always experienced in an egalitarian way. And just um, my my own my own positionality again um, but this time as a as a woman and as a mother 
um, is that the, the spread of labor around these things that are valued is very gendered, just mm. as one example of how tensions in Christmas can emerge. So the, the labor put into generating um, these positive relational experiences through, um, through organizing gift giving and through planning meals and through orchestrating um, something which is supposed to resemble these warm family experiences is often a burden that falls upon um, women to to achieve somehow. No, yeah, I totally agree with that actually. It is almost like um, a lot of that falls on the woman to uphold these certain traditions and that. Mm, and the, the term emotional labour is one that I've done a fair bit with um, academically, coming going back to Ali Hothschild's work, um, The Managed Heart, 1983, and, on, um, and her work on air hostesses most famously. But what I've observed lately is how this has been picked up, this term emotional labour has been picked up um, more generally in the public sphere and certainly in, um, in like a lot of different um, online mothers groups or feminist groups that I'm part of. Um, that has become a really intense topic of conversation and of course not always with the exact academic definition thereof but it's come to represent this realm of unseen, unacknowledged, certainly unpaid labour that um, that women engage in and aware of and really feel feel a cost to you know it does it does have a cost um, and yet has this immense generative social power um, to create so many things of value that again are kind of intangible things a feeling of family and warmth and um, you know holiday feelings all of these intangible sensuous things that women typically are the ones to invest in creating. Yeah, it's almost funny that that's the case because when people talk about holidays and that, they always talk about it as like a family thing. Like it's something that everyone contributes to where there's the reality of it is that there's just usually one member of the family, like you said, the woman that does or is expected to do most of the work. Mm-hmm. You could probably almost call it symbolic labour as well because when you think about something simple like decorating um, that you know evokes evokes what Christmas is um, through a lot of small symbolic actions um, and small symbolic you know objects and everything from smell to candles to um, being summoned to everyone give out their gifts and um, yeah symbolic labour and emotional labour. There's almost like a domestic aspect surrounding like um, these traditions, isn't there? Mm, there is, and it would be incredibly interesting actually to um, to do some work on the experience of Christmas through through that kind of feminist lens and understand how that might be gendered and how a lot of those, as you say, real anxieties and tensions and strains that come through in the holiday season, um, how they might be gendered and the experience of of Christmas, not just Christmas Day, but the whole season is probably very different depending on um, your social positionality. Yes, I would imagine so. Yeah, it's interesting. And I've also like read in another few articles that these sort of holidays, like a lot of the time, focus on the children, like preserving like this sort of um, childhood memories or like even gift giving is mostly emphasized on the children. Like what would be your view on that? So that's a very interesting topic, and I have two small children myself. They're five and they're and two, so I've kind of observed this over the last um, the last 
five to ten years for myself how um, my wider family Christmas has shifted from when for a period we were all um, all adults and what Christmas looked like then and then bringing in the small children and absolutely how the, the shift focuses around uh, around children and I like that point you bring up about about the creation of memories yeah. and uh, that's seen as the gift in itself, isn't it, to bestow or embed these memories in children's lives that, you know, the sense of that they will sustain them, that the, that um, family in itself is held and that, um, that memory that's carried on then. Interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, this is just a personal opinion sort of thing. But um, when you're a kid, you enjoy these sort of holidays. And then when you're an adult, you enjoy them, but not in the same way. And it's almost Mm. like it's not until you have children that you can fully, like, enjoy the holiday to its full Mm. potential again. Yeah, I think you're right. People live vicariously through the joy of children. It's seemed to be this kind of more... um, more pure emotion and perhaps it also resonates with some of the other um, symbolic values of Christmas around kind of innocence and around joy and the things that um, are also associated with this Western category we have of childhood. Yeah, definitely. So I guess before we even get close to finishing up, I want to talk a bit more about your recent work and focus a bit on that. Sure. So um, about your new book, tell me a bit about that. So the book is the result of the very long um, process of first my doctoral research and then um, following that, you know, the adaptation of the thesis into uh, into book form. So it's a cross-cultural comparative study of faith-based youth workers and one field site was in Christchurch, New Zealand, and the other was in Kampala, Uganda. And I began the research thinking about burnout as a very salient kind of cultural category, um, you know, well-being and burnout in a profession which is a caring profession. Um, and then I had to open up my lens much wider than thinking about just burnout and think about well-being in a lot more of a multifaceted way. So opening up from there, I um, discuss not only the kind of psychiatric categories of um, illness, but different spiritual understandings of selfhood and what it is to care and compassion and um, what it is what it means to um, to struggle and to suffer the meaning of suffering um, and then other um, embodied aspects of that as well as it articulates through you know, Christian life worlds and Christian practices and those bits look quite different between my two field sites but it all culminated in this book which is called um, Living in the Teaching was published by Carolina Academic Press earlier this year. Oh wow you must be so happy that that's finally out. Yeah, it's a wonderful feeling to have it um, completed. Although, um, as I've said many times now, um, you know, like art, ethnography is never really completed, only abandoned. So at some point, you just decide to um, to pop it out there as it is, and you just know that the the areas of theory you're engaged with, and the work by other scholars, and the broader conversations that it taps into, just keep going and going around you. But you've at least got, got the satisfaction of putting your one little um, one little contribution out there into that. So, um, of course, I'm continuing to read and work in a lot of these areas around um, medical and psychological anthropology and also um, the anthropology of religion 
but it's nice to be able to turn to some other projects and interests as well now. Yeah, so what are your focus for the moment in the future? Well, given that I've been teaching for the last three years since I completed my doctoral work, um, I've taken up some pedagogical research, which is which I've actually found really, really interesting because when I when I began my academic life, I didn't expect to particularly enjoy teaching. I thought it was kind of just the price you pay for an academic life and what I really wanted was to sit in my office and read and think. But it turns out I fell head over heels in love with teaching. So um being able to connect that experience of being in the classroom and being with students back to some of my other research interests around things like emotion and ritual actually has been a really rich part of what I've been doing um, over this last year in particular. So I've just been working on some um, some research about affect in the classroom, um, affect and embodiment in the classroom and part of what I did for that research throughout the year was to think about how I might use rituals in my classroom to um, to well, I use the idea of rituals of inclusion and belonging, um, which comes from um, Becky Thompson's work, a book called um, Teaching with Tenderness, and also going back to um, Bell Hooks's incredible work in the United States. Um, so the idea that um, yeah allowing students to be present in body as well as mind and also in, in heart, to use a colloquial yeah. colloquial idea, um, can be beneficial to them to learn and engage as, as whole people rather than just brains on sticks. This kind of what I've been working on, oh, wow. um, among, among some other things. But that's, that's what's top of my pile of research at the moment. Well, I'm excited for whenever that comes out because it sounds absolutely <laughs> <Thank> fascinating. <you. laughs> mm. I'm also interested to see how you um, observe your students. <laughs> yes, well, funnily enough, it's more about observing myself um, and thinking about my teaching practice. And even though I'm still relatively early in my career in that sense, it's been good to, after been doing it for a while, to go back and be really um, reflexive about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and how I might be able to do it differently. And, you know, teaching is just so important. I, I, I believe in the research that I do and that um, doing it can hopefully, you know, change the world for the better. But I, I'm more and more convinced that the real, the real benefit and beauty of the academic life I'm living is in the teaching and in these um, amazing brilliant young people living in um, living in a world full of pressures and strains as we all are who um, come and sit in my classroom and we have this incredible opportunity just to spend this time together talking about these really big topics that I teach on like death and dying like religion like evil and we have these conversations um, and I have this little captive audience for a, a short time of their lives and a short time of my lives but I want to be able to make this as rich as possible and anthropology has this transformative potential to change the way that people see the world. So I want to think about doing that and not just changing the way people think but actually opening up uh, a space where they can engage, as I said, as whole people, engage in things that are confronting to human beings um, in a way that they're able to think think morally, think politically, um, have real emotional responses and see this as a legitimate part of responding as an academic because academics are people too, as much as like we like to pretend we're um, 
some kind of automaton, some kind of very smart automaton. Um, I think being able to engage as whole people ultimately can make the field and the world um, more powerful as something that fosters understanding, um, appreciation of diversity and empathy in a world that really, really needs it. No, I just love that. I mean, I find a lot of... um this might be a bit rude, but I find like some academics and that always just want to dissect things or like focus on like these bigger theories and questions. But the fact that you're actually focusing on wanting to like teach people and educate people and like learn more about this, I just find that so inspiring, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been really inspired by reading a lot of other um, earlier pedagogical scholars, again, like Bell Hooks, who who um, approached teaching as this um, as an act of love. That was a really revolutionary concept to me, as an act of love and as something which can be completely um, transformative rather than just this model we sometimes adopt of um, information transfer, you know, flowing from my brain to, to yours. It can be so much more than that. And, I mean, a lot of the situational pressures and strains do have to be acknowledged that teachers, um, that academics don't have infinite time and resources to pour into teaching even if they want to Mm. Um, but both considering the structural issues around how we can support them to do that better and also the cultural values of teaching which can be sometimes devalued in favor of research especially with things like performance-based research funding Um, thinking about yeah both structural factors and cultural factors to move the the attention and appreciation back to what teaching can do, I think, is a wonderful thing for the discipline and for academia in general to be mindful of as we as we live through a period of flux and in, in academia as well. Well, I suppose I should tell all our listeners that um, Susan teaches at Otago University in the anthropology department. If you're interested in ever going there to study. Yes, and we do some of our courses by distance as well, so you can always enrol from afar, Um, particularly the one that actually spurred most of this thinking for me, um, the 400-level course called The Anthropology of Evil. And you can imagine how some of the topics that might come up in a course on evil are the type of topics that already begin to spill over these nicely bounded ideas of what academic engagement is, you know, sitting and thinking a lot of the topics that we bring up, um, things like like genocide, for example, um, and torture and things like that that are the darkest parts of humanity are confronting. They already elicit these kind of emotional and um, moral responses in students and in me as a teacher, goodness. So I sort of had to start to think then about what was the role of um, emotion in the classroom and which led me on this winding journey I've been on to think about teaching in, in a more epistemologically diverse way that acknowledges and appreciates other facets of being in the classroom as an embodied being and as an affective being and all of those yeah just so fascinating I'm excited for you for you to get this start doing this research and that so definitely keep us updated and we'll keep our audience updated too Um, thank you also for our audience, um, Susan's book, as we mentioned before, is Living Intention. She also has some more articles out there, which I recommend you looking at. And um, thanks for coming on here. 
That's great. Thank you very much, Angel, for having me on. And tiny little social media plug is that I've recently jumped on Twitter. So also um, I share, of course, I share a lot of my work through that. And I've started a new blog for um, my department down here at Otago, social anthropology blog, but I also share through Twitter. So if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm unlazy Susan. Um, and I, I really enjoy connecting with anthropologists all around and um, also with you, Angel, on the wonderful work that you're doing with this podcast. So thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speakers' work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.